Welcome, Richard. Bonjour, Pierre. Have a seat and uh, mind the cables. Uh, it's a bit messy in here, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, I hope that Worcester has been treating you well, and uh, I, I should point out to the listeners that the microphone that Richard is using is uh, it's a Harmonovox double T, which has some serious compression issues, so it might sound like he's on the phone. Um, but uh, Mr. Barbieri has a new album out, The Stranger Inside, and we've been listening to tracks this afternoon, and uh, we just finished listening to Drops of Mercury from your first solo album, Things Buried. And I have to tell you, that was my favorite track. I listened to it over and over again in a way that I haven't since uh, I was quite young. And it's caused me and uh, your latest work to reassess a lot of my opinions about how digital music is uh, is made and how it can be made. There seems to be a lot of uh, approach to programming layers and moods. You can really hear the playing instead of cutting and pasting. Yeah, I think that's, that's often the, the main problem when you're working uh, with computers. Uh, you tend to uh, look at the music instead of really listen to the music. And as a consequence, you tend to paste things together because it's easier and it takes you down a road that's not that interesting. So I've, I've tried to use a computer merely as a recorder and to get as much performance as I can um, into the tracks. You, so you've taken the, what's best in the analog world and applied that to the, the digital. Yeah, I, I, I became very comfortable with um, analog. You know, I've been using it for, I don't know, 25 years. So I, I, I knew where I was with it. I was very comfortable with it. And I wanted a bit of a challenge, you know. And I thought, why not work with software, work with virtual synthesizers and see whether... I had programming skills in, in that area, and if I could make the sounds, you know, appear warm and, and maybe get some emotion into the sounds and, and work the same way that I do with analog. And you're known for having very um, special relationships with uh, analog instruments, particularly your OBX, the Prophet 5, and the legendary System 700 uh, lab yeah. series. I'm astonished. How, how did you go from an average 17-year-old to the owner of a Roland System 700. And uh, for our listeners, it's a modular synthesizer. Mm. Well, I was very lucky, to be honest. The one bit of luck. Um, quite early on, we got uh, a big shot manager, one of these uh, managers from the 60s with the big fur coat and the big cigar. <laughs> Simon Napier-Bell. <laughs> exactly. Mm. I mean, he'd managed you know, people like the Yardbirds and Mark Bolan Springfield, um, and I kind of convinced him that that's what I needed. I didn't know whether um, whether I was going to be able to do anything with it. I knew that I couldn't play conventionally very well, and I wouldn't be able to hold down my position in the band. And um, I saw this in Rod Argent's music shop in London, I think in about 77, 78. And I just said, look, that's, that's all I need, and everything's going to be fine. And it was, funny enough. Was it, was it intimidating? Uh, the modular synthesizer, all those chords? Yeah, well, um, just for your listeners, it's not the full um, system, the thing that goes right across the wall with about, you know, 20 modules. It's the main, it's basically a main block. Uh, it's quite rare. It's called the Laboratory Series, and I think it was probably made initially for, like, universities and schools to teach people uh, electronics. But although it's hardwired inside, it's also... Um, you know, you've got a whole patching system. So it is semi-modular, I, I suppose. I see. And it, it won't just make a sound. You plug it in, you've got, to, you've got to start, you know, patching things around. And I was very lucky because that, that is the best way for, you know, somebody into synthesizers to start off. 
because you, you've, you've immediately got to start learning how, how, how the paths go, how, how do you make a sound, you know. And that was what I learned on, and I, was, I just played on that, you know, 12 hours a day until I could start, you know, making simulations of other sounds. You know, I could go from making a gong sound to a trumpet sound to a clarinet sound, and that was kind of my... That was my discipline, really. And then after that, things came natural, and suddenly in the group, I had something to offer, um, and, you know, it just went from there. The System 700, you still own it. I've, I've heard you refer to it in some other interviews. Does it make any appearance in your, any of your recent work as uh, samples? It hasn't made an appearance on the last two solo albums, mm-hmm. but um, I certainly use it on all the Porcupine Tree albums, and um, everything... Up until up until the last solo album, really, mm-hmm. I suppose. and it will be making another appearance because I, I, I feel now I'm, I'm I'm just ready to go back into the analog stuff again. I see. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'd like to talk to you about that as well too. And would you ever consider bringing the System 700 with you on tour, kind of like a Keith Keith Emerson sort of thing for the crowd? Yeah, it's, I'm just very worried about losing it or right. something happening to it. I would like to do that, of course. Nowadays, when I'm playing with Porcupine Tree, um, let's say I'm pretty occupied with, with what's going on in the track. I'm quite busy. Uh, there's a lot of parts. Of course, with the, with the 700, you, you've got to program each, each sound. So you, you've kind of got to program the next sound while you're playing something else. Um, and that's what I, I used to do in the early days with Japan. And it, it became really difficult. You mentioned before um, um, your, your manager, uh, Simon Napier-Bell, how did you feel about his management style, and, and did he ever go far? I'm, I'm interested, because Japan was packaged in a certain way, um, it seemed. And, and you've spent the last 15 years of your life working in, in collaborations, particularly with Porcupine Tree, where there seems to be a real uh, resistance to uh, packaging. And I was wondering if, if you ever felt that he had gone too far at any time, or uh, uh, how you felt about his management style. I, I think in the early days it helped us. You know, uh, he was a person who could walk into any office and get people's attention. Um, he was known in the music industry. It was still kind of uh, run by a lot of the old school, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of camp people from the 60s, old, old school business management. And I think it helped us in the beginning, definitely. I mean, we were seen as a complete hype, um, but I guess, from his and our point of view, it didn't matter if we managed to get deals and make albums. Mm. And eventually, you know, we, we managed to shed all that and, and just really get down to, to the music and mm. get serious about things. Um, later on, no, he, he kind of became a very odd sort of abstraction to, mm. to have as part of, of the setup, really. He probably didn't really understand what we wanted to do anymore. And... Um, it wasn't really it wasn't really working for us either. I think we we could just carry on ourselves. You know, mm. it's very rare that you're happy with management. Now you mentioned you, you started your musical career with Japan, uh, but before that, of course, you were you were born, and that was in London. And your parents had emigrated from Italy. Did you grow up speaking Italian? Uh, did that identity, your your surname, ever make you feel like an outsider? Sometimes in Southeast London in the seventies. No, actually, my although my father was uh, a half Italian and from Milan, mm. um, my mother was English. So, um, growing up in England, no, we all spoke English. 
I, I, you know, I feel Italian when it suits me, and I feel English when it suits me. <laughs> That's a very nice thing to have, actually. In 1979, you work with uh, Georgia Moroder uh, yes. for the uh, Life in Tokyo single. Mm. Um, now, did his production style give you, you space to work with your own approach to synthesis and how you wanted and where you wanted your music to go? Um, not, not really. That was one of those things in, in, in a band or artist career where they, they team you up with somebody because they're the the flavor of the day i suppose it's a bit like madonna working with william Orbit or you know justin timberlake working with somebody um and he was kind of the you know he was known for making hits especially kind of uh, electronic disco type of hits and so we were paired up i didn't really have that much to do with it i mean you go into the studio and all the gears there he's got his, his own guy who just like programs and actually plays all the sequences really yeah. So was that he your... He plays it with repeats. Pretty amazing. I had no idea. No. I mean, what, what he has as well, is he kind of makes the drummer redundant because he has um, reels of tape with drum performances at 120 BPM. And so he would just roll those. I guess I always assumed that that was your, maybe your Oberheim mini sequencer or his uh, micro composer, but uh, he was actually playing those sequences. Yeah. Oh, wow. Was, his, was it um, Fultermeyer? Just kind of playing, uh, you basically just set up a repeat and you just play half time and you get the perfect repeat. And um, obviously you've got to have good timing. And so I played, I played keyboards over the top of that, but mm. um, the actual main sequencer was, was just done, you know, by the guys in-house. And I guess you, you can't really argue with that. You're, you're being told to use this producer at that time. Um, I think that was kind of, that was the point uh, where after that, Things changed, and we kind of took total control, mm-hmm. and we kind of invented our own sound, and we, we used the producers we wanted to use. Mm-hmm. We worked in the studios we wanted to work in. Up to then, I think we were pretty inexperienced, really. It, it seems as if a lot of the, uh, the members of Japan don't really like their first two albums. Is, is that the case with you? Yeah, it's not that I don't like. I mean, the first album is, is a bit embarrassing, I mm. suppose. Um, that's, that's hard to listen to. Mm. I think the second album's got some interesting stuff. Um, personally, I was uh, starting to work better with the synthesizers. Um, you can hear a lot more of the System 700 and uh, Micromoog. You know, it was uh, Wurlitzer electric piano, but we started using more spacey effects with things and just started to have, let's say, a proper keyboard setup. So I, I, I can deal with the second album. Now, uh, about the, the sequencing, um, Vince Clark has maintained that analog sequencing, or CV gate, is always more precise than MIDI. He said, uh, quote, I can hear and feel that it's tighter than MIDI. We can even prove it using scopes. Because everything is clocked simply, it arrives bang on the beat, end quote. Would you agree with that assessment? I can, I can see what he means. Um, you know, there are inconsistencies with MIDI. I know a lot of problems, uh, a lot of people who have problems with it, or you get a lot of people saying, oh, you know, my old Atari was the tightest sounding, you know, that was the tightest sequencer that I ever had. And so, although I've never experienced it myself, I can, I can quite understand what, it, what he's saying. Sure. Richard, I love analog synthesizers. It's what this show is about to address, you know, the history of electronic music before techno um, and yep. to show that there is more. There's uh, Stockhausen and, and uh, uh, Vangelis. 
But these synthesizers, they die, they go out of tune, and ultimately even the most dedicated attempt at analog purity often ends up distributed as digits in a cheap set of headphones. Yeah. Um, is it too much trouble nowadays? I think it's probably a lot, a lot of trouble for people. Um, I have a really good guy who I take all my analog gear to. He's a real enthusiast and he's very skillful and he, he manages to repair everything and keep everything maintained really nicely. Um, I have found after making these albums, you know, on a computer within the digital domain that it, it's probably not the way forward for me. In a way, the way forward for me is the way backwards, if you know what I mean. Because I do miss the, the physicality of working with analog. Also, I miss the studio, you know, the studio environment. I, I prefer to work with other people around. I like, I like the interaction. Um, I also like the pressure it kind of puts on you yourself because it, it kind of inspires you to do more. I just find the more you work with a computer, the more of a solitary experience it becomes. And of course, it's so convenient and things do sound good these days. You know, uh, the, the leaps in technology is amazing. But there's something at the heart, at the heart of it that, that's missing. And I really feel... I'd prefer to carry on with more analog gear in the future. Now, on, on the flip side of that, I often visit forums on the net dealing with uh, vintage gear, mm. and uh, I'm amazed that many of these keyboards seem to have a, now a completely different reputation than they used to uh, when I played them in the 80s. Uh, for instance, my Juno 6 uh, is frequently reviewed by posters as having you know, a fat, P-H-A-T sound, uh, thumping bass, and uh, that just it doesn't jibe with my opinion of the synth then or now. And uh, No, I think I would have looked down on it at the time. Uh, my question is, do you think that there's sort of a, a cult of the analog, and, and uh, do you think that there are some misconceptions going on? Yeah, about... I think there's a lot. I think it's a lot of... Um, you've got a lot of kids on these forums who, um, who insist that they need a certain sort of uh, instrument or a certain synth in order to make their music, you know, and they'll say, I can't get that fat sound until I buy this synth. Or I bought this synth, it, it was rubbish, I couldn't do this with it, you can't play leads with it, you can't... Kind of really, it, it's actually, the instrument isn't really important at all. Um, if you have an idea in your head and, and you know how to work with sound, then you can probably work with anything. And having an uh, experience a history with uh, subtractive uh, synthesis as you do, uh, it, it'd probably be a lot easier to get that sound uh, rather than going to immediately to a new piece of equipment. It does seem to be like a constant state of acquisition. Yeah, of course. I, I can understand because it's, it, you know, it's a real thrill to, to get new stuff, new gadgets. That's what people enjoy. But you know, if you stick with one thing as well over a, over a longer period, there's always new things to learn, and you can always get more out of the, that same instrument. That's right, and and uh, and that's what you're known for. You're known for your relationship with the OBX and the Profit Five. Mm. I, I saw, in fact, a recent video of you, uh, the, the making of a, of a piece for Porcupine Tree, and you were there jamming with them uh, using your your Profit Five. Um, okay, that was uh, that was good to see. Mm. <laughs> but has there been anything for you recently that you've looked at and and you said I've ha I have to have that? My sound depends on it. No, no, my, my sound doesn't depend on anything, to be honest. I, I think, well, I'd like to think that I could make music with, with whatever I'm given. Um, you know, if even if it was an acoustic piano or something, I know I'd find some way to start affecting it and treating it and just, you know, get something out of that. Um, so I've, I've, I've kind of been used to working with limitations most of the time, and I find that interesting. Um, 
there's lots of things you'd like to try, you know. There, I saw this thing that's a, uh, is it called a continuum? It's like a sort of slide, set out like a slide guitar almost. You almost play it like a slide. I can't remember who makes it. It's called a continuum, two, two U's, no umlauts. And that looks really cool. I mean, there's a lot of cool sort of gadgets, and I suppose they're like, more like toys, a lot of these uh, sequential type things. Um, the Tenorion, things like that. But I don't know. I don't know. It just, it, in the end, it might be just a load of bright lights and, you know, a few sounds. I'm not sure. And confusion. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Because <laughs> it, it does seem like a lot of this stuff does come with a steep learning curve. Mm. And uh, for you, I mean, there's, you know how to generate sound. But at the end of the day, and after maybe a fine glass of champagne, uh, it, uh, it, it's hard to sit down and, and read a rather thick manual. Um, Bollinger, uh, 1957. <laughs> You've got instant sound available on an analog gear, but uh, how do you approach and how do you approach learning and working with uh, software, music software that uh, you acquire? Well, I suppose I have an instinctive feel for. For, for a layout of a synthesizer anyway. Um, what can be time-consuming is the actual, the, the music software itself, you know, the recording software. I, I like to just get on with things, and I don't want to be, you know, phoning up people or looking on forums because I can't put two tracks in to record while I'm sending to bus number 10 or something. Mm -hmm. I just want something quite simple and... Um, it just seems nowadays you're learning everything. You know, like my mobile phone, I've now got to learn a whole new software <laughs> with that. And, but there's not enough hours in the day. And really, I want to be enjoying the 1957 Bollinger Champagne <laughs> and just playing on a nice synth and just making some really nice music. It's, it's not always that easy. Um, what I use in my setup is I use Digital Performer um, because I've, uh, my friend Steve Jansen's always worked with that right back from the, the late 80s, I think. <laughs> The, the original performer stuff um, and I'm, I'm used to it you know I like I, I like the look of it and um, so that's what I've gone with the mm -hmm. rest of the band are with Logic mm -hmm. which they swear by but obviously it's like you know everybody's going to be into their own thing um, and I use Reason I've really got into that I, I actually I think I think people don't appreciate don't really understand what what the possibilities are with it, you know. I think people just see it as a as a little device for making some techno music, but actually, it's it's an amazing program. And I use that with Digital Performer. And on stage, I just use Reason on the computer for, for the software side of things. And I just set up one big song, and I have you know about six or seven mixing desks full of um, full of my sounds that I've, I've, I've programmed. And it's really really stable, and I quite like it. And you've done some uh, sounds for Reason as well, too. That's for the, right, uh, for yeah, the... I was asked by Propellerheads. Um, so I guess Propellerheads and Rolands are my, uh, you know, I have kind of endorsement situation with them. And uh, Roland likewise asked me to, to program sounds for the, uh, the new V-Synth GT. That must have been very nice. It's a nice feeling, actually, yeah. I mean, it took a long while, you know, yeah. 20 years or so, but um, <laughs> <laughs> nice to be asked, finally. Now, um, your, your new album, Stranger Inside, uh, we've been listening to it uh, on the show. Uh, one word that comes to my mind, uh, one feeling that I have after listening to it uh, is, uh, and this applies, I think, to your, your other album as well, too, is cinematic. 
are you influenced by film? Are you interested in it? And oh yeah, very much. Do you do you approach making music with narratives in mind or? Yes, yes. I mean, there's the. Sometimes the music comes from within, hmm. and it's a purely kind of emotional response. More often than not, it comes from external things that that I've seen, uh, kind of atmospheres, places, um, feelings. And on the other hand, it. I'm also kind of fascinated with other forms of music, which I try to introduce into my own uh, arrangements. But, but yeah, film is, you know, that is the medium, really. I'd love to do a film score. That would be great to hear it, sort of like an updated uh, Blade Runner soundtrack or something. It would be uh, incredible to hear a Barbieri uh, well, soundtrack. Well, amazing soundtrack. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about some of the other people that appear on your album? Yeah, well, those two... Uh, Obviously, for the for the vocal side of things, mm. but I'm, I merely sampled their voices. To be honest, I, di- I didn't want a performance, and I didn't want any kind of lyrics or sentiment uh, from from someone else because I was very specific about the mood mm. that I wanted. Um, but I did want the feeling and texture of vocals. I wanted the, that warmth, and both of them actually have very nice kind of uh, textures to their voices that you can manipulate and affect. So I got Tim to give me a whole load of vocal loops, and I grabbed as many of Suzanne's samples from her various works that I could, and I just really kind of manipulated them. You know, I ran them backwards, put them through processors, I pitch-shifted them, and um, so it, was, it played the part more of an instrument, let's say. I but see. I think it added a different, a different flavor, you know. And on the performance side, I, uh, I did a couple of tracks with Gavin uh, Harrison, who's the drummer in Porcupine Tree and world prog rock drummer of the year for the second year running and um, the great Danny Thompson on double bass who's yeah is a is a lovely lovely guy and he lives very near Gavin so it was easy for him just to pop over with his with his vintage double bass called Victoria he's had his whole career and it's such a lovely sound and it's just so great to be in a room with people playing are you have a, a a new album in in plan or in mind uh, in the future? And would you work with them again? Do you think? For yeah, I, I think. I'm, well, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to release another album until I've I've made it exactly the way I want to make it. And it might take a bit longer to do it and and be more uh, costly. But I'm going to take that time because I want to get back into the studio and I want to hear the sound moving through the air. I want microphones. I want performances. I want a vibe to it, you know? And as, as much as I can do, it's still me sitting in front of a computer <laughs> watching music. And hmm. it's, not, it's not really where I want to be. No. Uh, there's this picture on uh, the microsite for um, um, uh, your album, Stranger Inside and Things Buried. And there's a picture of you at uh, um, your synthesizers. It's, it's rather dark. There's a wonderful tapestry. Is, oh, yeah. that, is that your home uh, set up? It's not, actually, no. What that is is... Um, that's recording during the uh, Porcupine Tree Deadwing album. What usually happens is when I do my keyboards, I like to uh, go off into the countryside and be kind of very isolated. So I'll kind of set up a little room in a studio, like a residential studio, and I'll be miles outside uh, London, middle of nowhere really, and I'll take all my gear and I'll just, I'll go there for, well, at least seven days and just work on the stuff on my own. 
because that, that way I've got no distractions. I can work all day, all night if I want. So I just set up my keyboards around there, really. And, of course, still find time to play tennis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's becoming more and more difficult, but um, I'm still playing competitively. Yes, I've heard about that. Uh, um, uh, in fact, you won a, a regional championship. Um, I so, did, yeah. Uh, congr- congratulations about Thank that. You. So, are you going to have a uh, fine time to do that uh, on your tour with Porcupine Tree that's coming up? No, you can never really do it while you're on tour. It's impossible. Um, you know, occasionally uh, you'll have a day off or, you know, somebody will come up to you and say, oh, I play tennis, yeah. <laughs> but they don't. What they mean is they're going to have a go. No. Um, there's plenty, you know, we get plenty of free time and I just have to play then. I've just got to slow down a bit, really. body can't, you know, can't do the same things anymore. Luckily, it doesn't affect the musical side of things. It'll be a big tour uh, uh, of Europe coming up soon. Uh, any U.S. dates uh, that we can look forward to in the, the, the future? Um, well, this will be a, a short little tour, actually. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just going off and doing two weeks around Europe. The main reason is so that we can make a DVD. Um, but we really have toured this last album to death, to be honest. But we, we wanted to make a document of it. You know, we wanted to at least record it and, and kind of say goodbye to it and move on. So the idea is we'll start writing as a band in December and um, we hope to have something by the autumn. And if we do, then we will come to the States and we will tour all around Europe again. Um, if we miss that autumn deadline, it may run into next year. But It really seems as if uh, the band is getting a lot of recognition lately. And, of course, uh, it won a Grammy. Uh, the individual musicians are being honored. Yeah. And so it looks like the time is really uh, happening for the band. I read an interesting quote on a a fan site uh, for Porcupine Tree, and uh, one of the fans was complaining that it's such an underrated band. And and another fan wrote back and said, it's not underrated, it's Mm undergrasped, that uh, people don't understand the complexity uh, or or beauty of it. And and there seems to be somehow that uh, uh, people uh, are beginning to appreciate that more and more. Would you agree? Is that Japan or Porcupine Tree? Porcupine Tree, I'm Porcupine sorry. Porcupine Tree. Um, yes, I think with Porcupine Tree, it's always been very kind of incremental. You know, it's, it's, always, been, it's always been upwardly mobile, let's say. Um, each tour has been better. Each album has been better received. We seem to get fans on board and they bring their friends along and they stay with us. But in the last couple of years, it's really kind of rocketed quite a bit. Um, I don't know. I think it's a group. I think it's probably a group, on the one hand, that a lot of kids like, possibly because of maybe the metal side mm-hmm. that's come into the, the music and the, the kind of performance we, we, we put across and mm-hmm. the, the movies that we show, the films, the whole concept. But also there's quite a lot of old school people who, who are saying, well, I, I haven't got into a group like this since in the 70s. You know, mm-hmm. They finally mm-hmm. found a group that they can like in the way they used to like, I don't know, Pink Floyd or something. Um, so, yeah, we, I, I, would say, I would say we're probably not so underground anymore. I think most people tend to know about us. We tend to, the last album charted everywhere. And, of course, you work with Stephen Wilson. I, does he ever stop making music? No, uh, that's quite weird, isn't it? it it's amazing. Uh, I, there's this uh, discography that you can download that a, a German fan uh, assembled, and I think it's uh, yeah. uh, 400 pages or something. Yeah. But, uh, 
No, I mean it, it's it's quite weird. He's, he's almost bordering on aut- bordering on autism. Um, he can just he can just do obscene amounts of work in such a short time and compartmentalise things. You know, he can go off and play a concert, come home. Right now, I'm going to write another Porcupine Tree song. Now I'm going to write a collaboration with this other person. Now I'm going to remix a King Crimson album. Now I'm going to do a 5.1 of the live mix. It's unbelievable. I've seen him, and he he, he like he multitasks. Just think, this is ridiculous. But yeah, he's he's very talented. How how does that differ for you? Being you're you're in a rock band now. Mm. What's the, uh, and and some people call it progressive progressive rock band. I, I, I don't. How do you feel about that that identity or that label? And uh, how how different is it from being with a band like Japan, who you know they were your mates, right? You, mm. you grew up with them. Yeah. Well, I think both bands were progressive um, in, in the true sense of the word. And I have no problem with the term. It's just that people tend to think progressive. Oh, that must mean Genesis 1972 or something. I think so. Um, but of course, you know, bands like Radiohead are progressive. Muse are progressive. Um, it just means um, that you're, you're trying to find new ways, new ideas, new ways of putting your music across, um, which we've always done. As to the, the friendship side of things, yeah, I suppose the dynamic is, is slightly different in that with Porcupine Tree, we spend an awful lot of time together on the road, and so we don't tend to socialize too much away from that. Um, but we do get on very well. If we were younger, it would be more like the Japan situation where we were just mates and we were together all the time. But obviously, as you get older, there are more responsibilities in life. People have families, people make different friends. Uh, people move to different places. So, obviously, holding a band together is one thing, but you, you, you can't necessarily turn that into a completely social thing. Um, it comes down to work in the end, and when we get together, we're all great friends and we have a, we have a good time. I, I'm interested. You, you called Japan a progressive band, and uh, that's an interesting label because often people call it uh, New Romantics, uh, New Romantic Movement. Hmm. But to me, it's interesting that uh, even though the band was disbanded you continue uh with uh, many of the the members of the band they re- you remain in the similar orbits over and over again as if your music uh independently of each other uh, continues the same in that you still need each other or you still collaborate uh, even years after the original band disbanded yes we do i was i was around at steve jansen's house last night actually but we do we don't tend to talk about music it'll be just social um but every so often There'll be some collaboration, or, you know, we'll come together and, and, and try and do something. I guess we just share a history, don't we? Right yeah. back from when we were 14, 15 years old. We're probably all the musicians we are today because of each other. And going back to the progressive thing, um, I only say that in that Japan looked at ways to, to change the sound, to change the whole uh, production values, to change the way of making music. Um, but we did we did coincide with the whole new romantic thing, definitely. I just think we did it a bit earlier. We did it probably before a lot of other bands. By the time that had become a, a big genre, we'd made Tin Drum, which was completely different to, to anything about at the time anyway. That's right. It, it seems like a timeless album, and um, I'm amazed that it came out when it did, when you, when you hear what else was going on at the time and truly interesting, interesting music. And, of course, you, you were... You were right after Roxy Music, and, and you, but you preceded Duran Duran, but you had a completely different, to my ears, musical style and depth of complexity. 
I know that Duran Duran was greatly influenced by you. How did that feel when they became so successful and, and went off with their own music like that? I remember reading somewhere they were even recording a demo at one of the studios where, that you were recording. Yeah, they, they gave me a demo and they asked me to produce um, the first few recordings. I've actually got the demo on cassette with uh, <laughs> This is Planet Earth and Girls on Film on it. <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't. I suppose I just wasn't that interested at the time. Um, to be honest, we didn't really take that much notice about what other bands were doing. We were very much in our own little world. I mean, it's quite easy to see why Duran Duran would go on and become really big because I think they, you know, they wrote some good songs. They, they, I think they had stronger songs. Um, our thing really was was the music, and I guess we were more concerned about making something different and developing our own styles we never really thought that much in terms of commercial success that seems a lot healthier too actually well we weren't a slave to it you know when we were making tin drum we we actually under the impression that that album wasn't going to be released and the record company were going to drop us and that's that's what they were telling us the kind of you know <laughs> that's the sort of inspiration we had and encouragement from other people basically saying no we're not even going to release this because you know we don't believe in it um but we still made that album and that's because we didn't have that sort of pressure or or any particular expectations we just wanted to make really interesting music uh, richard has uh, kindly agreed to uh, play our game guess the synth and richard if you're ready i'll, I'll play uh, a bit from the the first synth and uh, i don't know if you have uh, if you played this one uh, with your career in japan but you might be familiar with some of the sounds so here's the first synth <laughs> Micromoog. That um, there's a track on the first album called "The Unconventional," and um, it starts off with an almost identical sort of sound to that. Um, so I'd say either that's a Micromoog or it's a far better synth that somebody has made sound worse. Spot on, Micromoog. And we have a next one. Um, one moment. you'll be able to hear that over your um, uh, tin. I can hear it, yeah. It has the, the kind of vague feel of a wasp trapped in a tin can. <laughs> um, but I think, it's, I think that's a bit more of a, an expensive synth. Um, I'm torn. I think, I think ARP. ARP. I think it's an ARP. I'm not sure that it would be the 2600 because no one would make that sound on it. That would be uh, a criminal offence. Um, so I think it's something like an ARP Odyssey or an ARP Axe. Okay, ARP Axe. Thank you very much, Richard. And we've got uh, another one coming up here now. Uh, this is a major hint, but it's a, it's a synthesizer that is very close to your heart. I didn't play that. I apologize for that melody. Okay, that sounds programmed. Um, that, well, I guess it's a Prophet 5. I don't think it's an OBX. It doesn't sound quite right. Um, I'd have to say a Prophet 5. 
Actually, Richard, that's amazing. That's a profit five. You were able to identify that over the phone transatlantic. Uh, so that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Okay. And then we've got one last one. This is, of course, a legendary synth that uh, I've devoted um, an entire episode to once. I, I don't know if you've used it very often. I'm sure you've used it in studio situations, but it's legendary. Okay. Uh, I'm torn between something from the Moog family or possibly Yamaha. Did the Yamaha CS3 have... Is that just a sequence playing, a sequencer playing the instrument? That is a sequencer playing the instrument, it's yes. It's not built into the actual instrument itself? Correct. It is not built in. I'm not sure. I'll take a wild guess at a, either a Polymoog or a Yamaha CS3. That was excellent. I, the Polymoog, um, very close. It was a Mini Moog. Um, okay. But you did manage to get the uh, the other questions correct. And, of course, uh, the prize is my uh, demo tape uh, from 1982. Uh, I have it on a, a reel-to-reel here uh, with my band Beaker. So I'll be giving that to you uh, afterwards, too. Do you want to try guessing one? How about this? Okay. Okay, it sounds like a cat that might be a little ill in need of a little bit of assistance. Now, you're at a music studio, my music studio, uh, in the dark, so I can't see what you're playing. Could that be a a wasp? No. Is it a digital instrument? It's not. It's just, um, I was just getting my gear ready for tour today, and I found this in the right at the back. And I've just put it through a, a Line 6 delay. Here it is. Is that a Putney? No. You're terrible at this game. <laughs> I give up. What is it? It is a Yamaha CS5 going through a Line 6 pedal. That's wonderful. I've never had the tables turned on me. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, I, I, I want to thank you. This has been a, a real delight and a big uh, pleasure for my audience. That's no problem. And congratulations on your track from the 80s, Divide by One. Yeah, any questions you have about... No, I thought that was one of the better... T- I thought the 80s was a terrible decade, to be honest, but um, there are a few bright moments, and I thought that was one of them. Thank you very much. Yes, we we beaker uh, uh, with our hit Divide by One, of course. And then it all disappeared, and... Um, you know, it all fell apart. It did. And and that was, you know, of course, the story. We were at a, uh, a gymnasium uh, in Owatonna, Iowa, and my vocoder um, started to, um, well, it started to start swearing uh, and using um, some uh, inappropriate language for the uh, the uh, high school dance uh, that we were at. And um, basically, I was uh, kicked off the circuit. And um, the uh, 90s weren't so great for me as a result of that. But um, uh, people still hear it from time to time, and it's uh, uh, quite a a pleasure to hear it recognized by you, uh, Richard. It it is a classic. 